You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season nine, episode seven. James K.A. Smith is professor of philosophy at Calvin University and serves as editor-in-chief of Image, a quarterly journal devoted to art, mystery, and faith. Trained as a philosopher with a focus on contemporary French thought, Smith has expanded on that scholarly platform to become an engaged public intellectual and cultural critic. As an award-winning author and widely traveled speaker, he has emerged as a thought leader with a unique gift of translation, building bridges between academy, society, and the church. In this episode, I talk with James about the role of imagination in shaping or restoring the narratives we believe about ourselves and society. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy an additional interview segment on attentiveness as a core tenet of creativity and the countercultural practice of contemplation. This is my interview with philosopher James K.A. Smith. James, thank you so much for joining me on the Makers and Mystics podcast today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to chat with you, Stephen. Thank you. This season, we've been focused on mental, emotional, and spiritual health as it relates to the creative artist. And I know one of your books, On the Road with St. Augustine, dives into some of that. And I thought that would be a great launch pad for us to get into the conversation, but for you as a philosopher and an author, talk to me about emotional health as it relates to the artist and in your own experience. Yeah, I'm so glad you guys are talking about this. I, I think um, we can't talk about it enough, honestly. And um, I, I think one of the reasons why, on the one hand, artists and makers should be especially primed to talk about it, uh, and yet, perhaps still don't is because, I mean, the arts are all about holism. You know, there's, there's a sense in which I think for every genre of art, we're talking about the very form speaks to something that pulls the human back together from all the kinds of fragmentation that we experience in late modern culture or from, you know, Gnosticisms of various stripes that we've inherited or whatever it might be. So in, in some ways, Art, the arts are uh, an antidote to our dualisms and our fragmentation. And in that sense, we should be primed to realize that emotional, mental, physical, spiritual health is, is about wholeness and healing. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that, I don't know, there's, there's also a very uniquely American aversion to dealing with such things and to facing such things. So I actually, I I wrote a a piece for the Christian Century a year or two ago on, in which I said, I try to be actually very candid about, I went through a horribly dark suicidal depression, uh, probably seven or eight years ago. And two things saved my life. Uh, A counselor who was a complete gift to me and poetry. <laughs> and there is something about the way art works on the slant, as Dickinson put it, that I think is precisely what we need to grapple with our emotional uh, 
uh, and mental challenges. Because I'm a philosopher, and it was very, very humbling to realize I couldn't think my way out of that problem. Do you know what I mean? Like this wasn't, I didn't have to, it wasn't just a matter of figuring something out. It was the fact that I carried a bad story in my bones. And so what I needed was re-narration. I, I needed to be re-storied and that re-storying was going to restore me or, you know, get me on the way. And so that's precisely why I think the arts were for me one of those lifelines where, you know, the poet, the novelist, the filmmaker is bypassing all of my sort of critical analytical tools by which I usually defend myself or protect myself from such confrontation. And they were sort of deking around all of those habits of mind and then tapping right into sort of the core of my heart's longings and brokenness. And so, yeah, uh, um, the gift of that, I think, uh, has been really, really crucial. Now, I guess I'm saying that that's how that's how the arts can help anyone, I hope, uh, grapple with mental uh, and emotional health. I think the challenge for artists themselves has to find expression in communal endeavors. Mm -hmm. right? uh, there's something so isolating and solitary about being a maker, and it has to be by definition. Like, I, I think it's a, there's something certainly inescapable about that, especially if our art isn't just going to be wholly derivative, right, and, and imitative. So that, that, that's kind of built into the project. And yet, I don't think we can be whole alone, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I don't think we can be healthy in isolation. And so there's, yes. there's uh, it, looking for the communal... Um, the body, the body that we become part of, I think is, is really crucial. One thing that comes to mind as you're talking about this is how the imagination factors into this process of restoring the narratives that we believe. Because I know you've done a lot of work on the imagination and, and how that plays into our experience so I'd love to know how you see imagination factoring into the restoring process. I don't want to get too philosophical about this, but it's at least helpful to say the term imagination can invoke different things for us, right? So on the one hand, I think probably still a lot of us have a tendency when we hear the word imagination to think, you know, the fantastical capacity to project and make up things. And that's true. I, I actually don't want to deny any of that. It, interestingly, in the philosophical streams in which I swim, uh, French and German philosophy and things, imagination, that's part of it, but imagination is more like a name we use for um, what, what old modern philosophers would have called a faculty, like a component of our mindedness that helps us to make sense of the world. So in that sense, imagination isn't just my capacity to invent and fantasize. Imagination is now something more like my pre-analytical, pre-theoretical feel for the world. Mm -hmm. And... I am, in some sense, I imagine the world before I ever think about it in this term, right? That is, I, I, have, I have sort of a, a take on the world, 
a read on the world, a feel for the world that is being processed on the register of the imagination before it ever gets conceptualized by the intellect. Mm -hmm. And that imagination, however, is trained. That imagination is not something that's just neutral or universal or a blank slate. Do you know what I mean? It is that yeah. our imaginations are primed by the stories we've absorbed that are now priming us to uh, have a take on the world, to have a feel for the world because we're inhabiting a certain story. So I think our emotional ill health you know, our, our struggles mentally and psychologically and spiritually are sometimes the result of the fact that we have been carrying in our imagination a false story, a story that's not true to the world, that's not true to our own experience. It could be a story that has tried to like, it's been a blinded story, right? And it won't face certain things. And because that has been the story that we learned and acquired, not because somebody taught it to us directly, but because we caught it through the images and stories and legends and myths that we've been immersed in. If we've been working with this stunted or distorted or blinded story, well, now we actually don't have the resources to make sense of our own experience. And that's where we, we feel this like discombobulation and disorientation and, and fragmentation. So, I would say, you know, the, the great gift that my counselor gave me was really just re-narration. Do you know what I mean? Like he was part part of part of the hard work was was him helping me to unearth, oh yes, this is the story I thought I believed in my head, but actually this is the story I've kind of carried in my gut. And that story, that's a that's a really it's a shameful story or it's a you know a, a limiting story or something. And so you first have to almost kind of unearth the distorted stories to then start imagining what re-narration, reformation of your imagination looks like. And I think that's that's kind of the way to think about what sanctification is, right? Is it's is it's <laughs> is it's a re-narration of the story we carry in our bones, which then just uh, you know it's out of that story that our being and doing flows. You said something earlier. You said you weren't necessarily taught it, but you caught it, and so I think it it points to the fact that largely these narratives we believe are unconscious for us. We don't even know what's driving our thoughts or our behaviors a lot of times. And um, I'm curious for you, what was the process like of restoring or re-narrating life uh, in, your own, in your own process and, and you know, how faith or art played into that? You mentioned poetry as well as your counselor. Yeah, and more, right? So I, I think it's funny. This is also such a lifelong endeavor. Do you know what I mean? It's not yes. <laughs> episodic. It's such a lifelong endeavor. And so in some ways, I think part of what had to happen for me was a kind of revisiting of my own history and past with a different set of lenses on that this that this friend think of the counselor as to me a friend who is hearing my story and in that sense he's actually he is a vicar of sorts in the sense that he is you know he ha, he's he's 
almost like a, a presence of God to me because now this is God hearing my story. And so being known and seen in that way is so, so significant. But what happens is, is you, you go through this unearthing process where you now you, you re-narrate what you thought was your memory. Mm-hmm. And in that intersubjective dynamic with another person, you start realizing, oh, maybe even the story I've been telling myself about my past is not really the story of what happened. So there's there's that kind of almost re-narration of a past, but that's, that's not quite an answer to your question, is it? I, I, I would say my, my experience of it was, it goes back to our, our theme about holism and putting things back together it was it was it's sort of like an experience of realizing oh i've carried conflicting stories within me mm-hmm. and what does it look like to start to get things aligned yes. because as you said you know it's not taught in in some ways i think part of what i've struggled with and may, maybe others find this too it's the gap between i know what i know what i think and what i believe and yet the story that's still sort of playing out is the soundtrack in my gut. Yes. And, and how do you sort of convert uh, and align those things? And this is, this is where, um, so I, I read a poet uh, named Franz Wright, who died several years ago, but was a, was a significant 20th century poet who, in my case, what was significant is the fact that he also struggled with father absence, let's call it. That was sort of like the core source of my experience of brokenness. And I just remember reading a poem by Franz Wright about, you know, a dream where he met his father and he talks about how, you know, since you left me at eight, I have been star far from the person right next to me. Mm. And it's like, Oh, I he just put into words something that I have never ever been able to say to myself before, but the poet named it. And in naming it, it was like this epiphany, this unveiling. It was apocalyptic in that sense. And and he sort of pulls the lid off, and all of a sudden, in that experience, I feel seen. But I also see myself and I realize, oh, okay, yeah, that explains something. For me. And you sort of know where to work on. Yeah. I'll give you, uh, this is this is going to be uh, almost uh, silly. I hope it's not a silly or trite example. You know, when you think of this re-narration of a past, so I, I would say, you know, uh, we're, we're all in different places. I'm a Christian. That has been a huge part of my story and identity and wholeness and healing. When I think back, but I wasn't raised as a Christian. And so becoming a Christian was a significant thing for me. Honestly, when I think back to, you know, 1987, 1988, and I just kept playing U2's Joshua Tree album over and over and over again. And honestly, Stephen, it was, I see now that there was a kind of imaginative preparation of me and for me in that album that I would have had no idea what was going on. Mm -hmm. And yet I actually think part of my path is plotted uh, by that artistic 
experience in a way. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Does that seem crazy or? No, no, no. It makes total sense, you know, and uh, I'm going to bring something up here that listeners will have heard me talk about on several episodes this season, but it keeps coming up. And I think it, it fits right in with, with what we're talking about, but it's this word integrity. And as you're talking about holism and putting things back together, you know, I know there's such a fragmentation that's happening in our society as well as inside of many of us. And I began to study that word integrity because it's something that I've needed in my own life is to understand this and understanding it as something broader than just a moral construct. But looking at the root of that word, that integrity means to integrate. And there's something about bringing these pieces together. And as you're even talking about your own experience with restoring this and some of your encounters with poetry and music, I wonder if you could speak into integrity as integrating. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm so with you. I'm glad you guys have been thinking and talking about this. And and it's funny, we so immediately tend to moralize the term integrity, which is, of course, that's fine. I mean, sure. uh, we want people to have integrity in that sense. But But it's so much more existential and metaphysical than just like, telling the truth or something, you know, it's, it's about, as you said, this integration and wholeness. And in that sense, I think one of the diagnoses of what late modernity does to us, one of the, the um, pathologies of late modernity is that it fractures us, right? It pulls us apart in, in, um, uh, so I teach, uh, you know, intro to philosophy every semester, and I have my students read Saint Augustine's Confessions, mm-hmm. and I emphasize with them that this will this I think dovetails with the theme that you guys have been talking about. The theme, the notion of identity, right, which is a significant theme that we talk about today, but. I, Augustine also sort of grappled with this because identity, the sort of Latin root of the word identity is oneness, to be one, to have an identity is also to be integrated, like to be pulled back together. And it's it's really interesting. Augustine reads the parable of the prodigal son as the experience of somebody who leaves the identity and integrity and wholeness of home searching for something. But what happens is when they land in that distant country, they are scattered, they are dissolved, they are fragmented. They went thinking they could be free to be whatever they want, but they end up being nothing because they're sort of pulled apart into these pieces. And for Augustine to find yourself that homecoming is actually coming back to integrity, coming, it's being put back together again and finding identity. But your identity here isn't just something you're making up. It's actually the sense that you're being found in a story that's given to you. And I think that speaks again to why films, literature, poetry, uh, um, that those those arts that are narrative in particular can have such a significant impact on us because they are giving us a story or a way into a story that we can live into and that's where we find ourselves that's where we find our identity our integrity our our wholeness and i i think 
that's working on us in ways that we don't always realize. The unconsciousness that you pointed yes. out, I think is really, really crucial. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I think as a culture, we are experiencing this on an individual level, but I think we're also experiencing this on a societal level. And we no longer share the same narratives. I mean, of course, there are always different perspectives, but different perspectives are different than not sharing the same narrative. And so some of the fracture that's happening on an individual level that may be a result of the pandemic and some of the isolation that took place there and, and things that we're all working through as a result of that, but also on a societal level, I see this same fracture. And whereas in times past, and you mentioned your, your faith, but I don't even see the integrity or uh, in in that space either. There, at one time, I was like, "Oh, well, I identify as a Christian." That no longer holds the same no. meaning for sure. for so many people. So I'm with you. Um, one one thing I think that's important to qualify, and I'm I'm sure you would agree too, is it's tempting to imagine we used to have something that really turns out that some of us had, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, so in that sense, you know, right. you, it, it, we could say, yeah, something has changed. And what has happened is a segment of folks who thought they shared the same story don't anymore, but it actually turns out in the past, there were always sort of very different experiences and accounts of what that, what, whose story we were living into, right. Or what that identity would be. So in that sense, I think coming, facing the multiplicity of narratives is actually a healthy thing rather than pretending that there was one, uh, which we had the luxury of doing because let's be honest, we were white guys. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, so I think there's something about facing that reality, but think of the difference of the a kind of appeal that Dr. King made. All of Dr. King's appeal was always to not, it was in a way to a kind of uh, identity that was past, but for the most part, it was actually aspirational identity, right? So if you said, let's say we're, we're both here in the United States, if you, if you want to talk about something like the American experiment, the American project, the American story, you could do that. And it was, there was a catalyst for it that was in the past. But what's really, I think, notable is the eschatology, we would say, of Dr. King, the way a Dr. King does it, right? Which is, okay, we haven't all had the same experience. The, the vision and story has not played out uh, for all of us or in the ways that we want. But the question is, could we find commonality in what we're hoping for, not what we've accomplished? And I, I think that's what's really lost today is, is the capacity. Our history is contested, but what I think is even more um, destructive and demoralizing of uh, the very project of forging a common wheel with one another is that we can't imagine how to hope for a future that we could share together. And I, I think, you know, we need, we need artists and poets and songwriters who help us foster a futural imagination, a, a hope. And yeah, it's, it's hard work. It's very, very hard. And, and I, th I think it's going to be, it's going to require a certain countercultural stance of the artist and maker to call a society back to that. 
Yes, yes. And that leads into one of the other questions I had for you, which is how can the artists engage our current climate with hope and in a beneficial way, you know? Yeah, yes, yeah. I think, I, I mean, the, the trick, of course, is um, how to, on the one hand, be hopeful <laughs> without being Pollyannish. Right. <laughs> and how to be uh, futural, like oriented to a future, right? What is What are we being called to without being blind to the past? And I think the name uh, that we've had for that kind of standpoint for a long time is prophetic. Do you mean like if, and I'm just thinking about like the way the Hebrew prophets functioned Mm -hmm. was for the most part as on the one hand, agents of memory who were then calling a people to be something different into the future, right? Do you know what I mean? Like how to inherit and how to live forward. And, and I think what we need are artists who can both give us eyes to see what got us here, but also can help us articulate to realize that we are not consigned to the present. We are not defined by the present. Mm-hmm. We are not even defined by our past we are it is a given for us like we we are heirs of a past but now the but it's not it doesn't predetermine our future the question is who can we become given our past and and this is where i think art has to have this is the other side of imagination perhaps right that that ability to float free of the status quo expectation and to help us to start to imagine how we could be otherwise and that leads me back to another question that i had concerning the imagination and this is a quote that I've heard you speak on before, but you you said that our imaginations are susceptible to malformation depending on what images we feed them, what stories they soak up. It's the imagination, well or malformed, that determines what I see before I look. And so when I'm thinking of the artists living in our modern time, and I'm also thinking about how our culture is such a visual culture. I mean, we're, yeah. we're, we're driven by the visual. What do you think leads us to healthy practices that the artist can put in his or her life? Yeah, so this, this goes back to what we need to realize is all of us carry this unconscious imaginative well within us and if and especially if we are makers and creators and artists we are always making out of the fuel and fund of that well do you know what i mean but if you realize that that well is contingent historical it's been shaped and formed by your history by the moment in history by what by what you fed it but also by all kinds of things that you didn't realize were feeding into it that's that's the and this is where i i think um you know just getting comfortable with interrogating one's own um blind spots and and to and just actually just being comfortable to realize oh i have an unconscious I am actually not fully in control of what I carry within myself. And, and 
And, and by the way, there's, there's really, really great traditions of artistic creativity that are built on exactly that conviction, right? Um, so then we have to, part of the exercise is to undertake a bit of an audit, as it were, of our imagination and sort of say, okay, what are the, what are the stories that maybe I absorbed here that I didn't even realize? Now, I think that that's harder to do on our own. I think that's where we need one another, where communities, you know, the, yes. I think sometimes our imaginations are the things that are closest to us, but the things that are closest to us are the things that fall out of our own purview. And so I need you to help me to see it because I can't see it. It's almost too close for me to see. So I, I think that kind of interrogation we have to get comfortable with. Yes. But then I like your question about, you know, what, what could we be cultivating? How, how could we cultivate our imagination? And it strikes me that, well, I have two thoughts on this, and this is not systematic, but your question just prompts it. The first is, as you say, there's something just so saturated visually about our culture that I do wonder if those, especially who are creating, need to practice a certain kind of fasting. Mm -hmm. Uh, a certain kind of asceticism with respect to our visual immersion. And, and by the way, I don't think this is just true for visual artists. I think this is, I think there's probably a need for creators to become desert mothers and fathers of a sort in late modernity to just get some distance yes. from the saturation of especially a commercialized visual culture. So I think that there's something about just like, think of it as fasting or think of it as a Sabbath for the eyes or whatever it might be, right? Like finding ways to get out. The other thing though, this is, this I think is important. I think the most creative people that I really treasure working today are absolutely promiscuous in their artistic appetites, Mm -hmm. in their aesthetic appetites insofar as their their aesthetic curiosity ranges across genres and fields and and so, so you know I, the novelist who's absolutely devoted to opera and ballet and do you know what I mean? and it's not yes. because it's not just because they're going to use those experiences in their own making but it's because there's a kind of deepening and stretching and expanding of the imagination in all of those experiences of art that are building capacity in me that i don't even know yet what i will do with and so i, I think one of the greatest habits that creators and makers can cultivate is just this kind of like unbridled promiscuity about aesthetic devotion, you know, and, 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 and which includes like probably making your way into things that you don't know exactly what to do with, you know, like I, I still find opera very intimidating, but then if, especially if I go with a friend who sort of holds my hand and helps me to understand what's going on, I'm like, this is incredible. You know, it's just like this super art. Uh, um, all of that, I, I think, um, to be in a place where we are also amateurs mm -hmm. um, and where we can't immediately put on our critic's hat and just sort of experience and absorb is a really, really good humbling practice, uh, which turns out to be a good posture from which to do our own creating. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more on that. And I think one of the beautiful things that we have access to today is being able to reach into all of these different art forms and all of these different expressions and pull from them. And it does enable us to be that wake up every morning as a beginner type of mindset, you know, and this is something I haven't thought about before, but when we were talking about integrity being something that pulls all things back together, integrity also enables a cross pollination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a a cross pollination. Yeah. It's a great place in that, you know, I've never thought about that before. Because you're saying, because when you bring the parts back together, they also encounter one. Yes. And so the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's a great point. It's a really great point. And and it it also ties with the theme we've talked about in terms of the unconscious. Just remember, you just never know how your own imagination is going to deploy what it is absorbed. Right. right. There's just like, like, that's, that's how creativity works. You just, you keep digging the well and you never know when your own making is going to plunge into a corner of that well that you hadn't anticipated. That's right. Uh, you know, I, I was writing a tiny little project this morning and it was just, it reminded me again, my favorite day of writing is when you start and you think, okay, I know I have to work on this. And then you finish the page. And at the end of it, you're like, well, I never would have guessed I would have wrote that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I had no idea that's where it was going to come. And the, to be surprised by your own making is possible. I think when you keep fueling or when you keep digging those imaginative wells. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the way, one one other thing that you, you've got me thinking about something too, in terms of you know, we said this, you know, in some ways the artists might be the ones who have to get a little bit of distance from just the image saturation. I think another thing that's great for artists to lean into is the local, yes. as opposed to consuming only the art that everybody else is looking at. Do you know what I mean? So there's Very something good. about now. Don't get me wrong. When I go to New York, I'm going to the Met, I'm going to MoMA. I, I want to see what everybody else is seeing. But on the other hand, you know, what's happening at the Grand Rapids Art Museum, maybe 100,000 people are going to see that over the next six months, but I can be one of them. And th- what that means is the local can also be a source of distinctiveness because there's almost that kind of, um, oh, well, what's happening in my corner of the world and and there's a certain almost I I I take that as kind of uh, almost a sort of providential thing, right? Like, oh, okay, well, what am I supposed to bump into here? Yeah, and um, there's 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 great surprises to be found around the corner. Oh, I love that. That's that's such an incredible thought. We we often encourage people to eat locally, right? Yep. What if we, what yes, if we translate yes, that yes. to the arts? You know, exactly. Because there's there's something about the nutrients of what is around you, and yes. I was also thinking about, you know, often you hear that what is big in the underground right now is going to be what's going to be big across the board in ten years or so, and so you never know. There's there's a bit of a prophetic nature to the local creative expression that when we can give ourselves to what's right around us, we're probably seeing glimpses of things that may surface in other areas uh, in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. So eat local and feed (laughs) your imagination in the neighborhood. That's That's right. (laughs) That's great. 
James, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics today. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. This has been great. We could we could have talked for a long time. Uh, oh, we, uh, let's, we could, let's do it we again could. sometime. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. And as always, thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. And a very special thanks goes out to our monthly patrons and supporters. Your generosity enables us to continue the work of advocating for the arts and the spiritual life. If you aren't currently supporting the Makers and Mystics podcast, please consider joining our creative collective today. You can find us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and explore our library of over 200 episodes at makersandmystics.com. Contributing as little as $1 to $10 a month makes a huge difference in our ability to produce quality content and lift a voice of encouragement to artists and creatives around the world. Patrons receive access to additional interview segments, online book clubs, and discussions on art and the spiritual life. We'll see you again next week. And in the meantime, keep creating. The world needs your art.